Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. One of the most influential books of all time was written from a jail cell by a Baptist pastor. He was in England in jail for 12 years for preaching without a license when he wrote it. And as you may have guessed, the title of the book is Pilgrim's Progress and the author is John Bunyan. Now, there are many, many reasons why this book has been so widely read and has remained in print for over 300 years since it was first published in 1678. What's so appealing about this book is that it is an allegory, meaning simply this, that every part of the book has a deeper and a hidden meaning. Just one example in the book, and I think you'll understand what I'm getting at. It's when a man is led into a parlor full of dust that has never been swept. So this man swept it and the dust flew up and choked him. Then a woman sprinkled the floor with water and when she was finished sweeping, it was all clean. And see, there's more to it in the story than just sweeping and cleaning. The parlor represents the heart of man. The dust is sin, inward corruption. Sweeping is the law. Sweeping with the law could not clean him. It actually choked him. Water sprinkled. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that cleans you see, the whole book is filled with this kind of illustration of the Christian life. And it's an excellent, excellent use of allegory where almost every action and almost every character is intended to have a deeper, hidden, spiritual meaning. But the use of allegory has been very destructive to the church of Jesus Christ. Here's the difference. John Bunyan intended the deeper meaning in his work of fiction. But there are a whole bunch of people today who take this approach to studying the Bible and it is destroying their understanding of the Word of God because their assumption is that God has intended these deeper hidden meanings in the text that are simply not there. They almost give every part of the Bible a deeper meaning. Let me give you some examples of what I'm getting at. If you've heard these in a sermon or if you've read them in a book, you have sat under an allegorical interpretation of the Bible. The Song of Solomon is often interpreted allegorically as referring to the love that Christ has for the church or as God's love relationship with Israel instead of what it actually is. Just a beautiful, beautiful picture of a romantic relationship between a lover and his beloved Genesis is no longer about a literal creation week. If you have heard of men like Origen and Augustine, these are some of the men that influenced this line of thought. They heavily promoted the allegorical school of interpretation where they have these secret, deeper, hidden meanings all throughout the passage, but they ignore the obvious meaning right before them in the text. And perhaps the most famous allegorical interpretation is Origen's explanation of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Listen to this. It makes no sense. 
According to this view, the man who is robbed is Adam. Jerusalem is now paradise, and Jericho is said to be the world. The priest is the law, and the Levites are the prophets, and the Samaritan is said to be Christ. The donkey is said to be Christ's physical body, which bears the burden of the wounded man. The wounds are his sins, and the inn is now the church. The promise of the Samaritan to return is said to be a promise of the second coming of Christ. Here's the difference. We recognize that when God communicated to mankind, at times he used typology, and at times he used metaphors. Certainly he did. But the allegorical interpretation looks to go beyond the literal interpretation of the Bible. The focus then is not on the author's intent. The focus is not on looking for God's intended meaning in the Bible. Men who allegorize the text are very creative. I mean, some of them are incredibly intelligent, much more intelligent than me. They're said to be looking for the deeper hidden meaning or the spiritual meaning of the text. Bringing their own ideas into the text is what they're doing instead of looking at the simple words on paper. This is actually where the idea that the coming literal kingdom of God is now said to be Jesus reigning in our hearts today. Makes for great preaching. It really does. If you sat under some of these guys, it's emotional. It's, it's fantastic to listen to in some ways because you hear these insights that you've never, ever heard before from the word of God. And there's a reason. There's a reason. These deeper hidden meanings that men are said to discover are not there. It does make the person preaching seem smart because people leave thinking you are more spiritual than them, finding insights that they've never thought of in the word of God. I like to tell people, imagine the last time you walked into a McDonald's and ordered a Big Mac and you walk in and order that that Big Mac. They didn't give you a milkshake and say to you, I know he ordered a Big Mac, but I think that the deeper hidden meaning of what he really wanted was a chocolate milkshake. Why? Because we understand language, because it has inherent meaning. We let the words on the page dictate the meaning. So we reject the allegorical interpretation of the word of God, because all it does is read our preconceived ideas into the text. Now, our goal is to let the teaching of Scripture flow from the Bible itself, from the words that God used to communicate to mankind, not looking for any mystical hidden meaning. But this is why Galatians 4 stands unique. And there's a reason why I'm telling you this all this morning. It is the only place in the New Testament where some of the translations refer to this as an allegory from the Old Testament. Let's skip down to verse 24 for just a second. Referring to all that we're about to look at with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, Paul writes, which things are symbolic. And some of your translations say this is an allegory. How do we understand this? First, we always remember that Paul took the Old Testament history literally. He believed Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar were historical people who really lived. This is a part of what separates this passage from the liberal scholars today who allegorize the fall of man, the flood, Jonah, and the whale. What the Bible teaches as history, Paul accepted as historical Second, we remember that Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning that whatever he wrote was true and every bit of analogy he made was from God himself. 
But that does not mean we have a license to go start hunting and looking for deeper hidden meanings that are not there. We find what the scripture means in context, in the words, as God himself intended. Paul was not defending the use of allegorical interpretation. He's simply illustrating a point. That's all he's doing, using a story. And when he says allegory here, he didn't have in mind what men are doing today with the allegorical interpretation, always searching for that deeper hidden meaning. He had in mind what we would simply call an analogy. And that is what we're going to see as we walk through this text this morning. Just some simple analogies, and the text bears this out. Now, what's an analogy? An analogy is when you compare two things to teach something or make a point. Let me give you some examples. Finding a good man is like finding a needle in a haystack. That would be an analogy. Or that something is as useful as rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. That's all that Paul is really doing, comparing the children of freedom and the children still enslaved to the law, comparing them with Sarah and Hagar. Paul used them as illustrations. Now, there's a reason that Paul did this. There's a reason that Paul went down this road in the text. There's a reason that he taught this way. You see, the legalists of Galatia, they were teaching this way, using these type of arguments to persuade the Christians to become circumcised and follow all those Mosaic laws. Paul used their own weapon against them. Paul showed that he could argue the law just as well as the legalists to show that even the law itself pointed to Jesus Christ. So Paul turned to Abraham, the founder of the Jewish nation. So let's walk through this in Galatians 4, and then at the end we'll put all this together and see how this applies to you and me. Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Now, the best way to simply understand what's going on in Galatians 4 is to back up and take a step back and to let me walk you through just real quick Genesis 12 through 21 and all that happened. Tracing the events that Paul is using to form his argument for Christian liberty. At age 75, you remember that Abram is called by God and told to go to Canaan. And God made him several, several promises, including the assurance that he will have many, many descendants. This is Genesis 12. Abraham's wife is barren, but she and Abraham had been hoping and praying for children, and God had not answered their prayers because he was waiting until both of them were as good as dead. Then he would perform the miracle of sending them a son. At age 85, Abraham realized Sarah seems to have given up hope with a complete lack of faith. What did they do? They came up with a solution. She asked Abraham to marry her handmaid, Hagar, an Egyptian slave girl, to have a son by her. Sarah would regret this later. This was a legal act in the ancient world. It was something you could legally do, but not acceptable in the eyes of God. Abraham caved. Abraham did as she asked and married Hagar. This is Genesis 16. Abraham then at age 86, Hagar is pregnant. And of course, what happens? Sarah becomes jealous. And if you look at Genesis 16, 5, Sarah blamed Abraham. Sarah blamed Abraham. 
There is friction and discontentment in this household, which results in Sarah throwing Hagar out, but the Lord intercedes on behalf of Hagar. He sends her back and promised to take care of her and her son. And Hagar was told by the angel of the Lord that Ishmael would be what? He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Meaning nobody could control this guy, not even his mother. The new son is born when Abram is 86 years old and he calls him Ishmael. This is the teaching of Genesis 16. Age 99, once again, the Lord speaks to Abraham and promises him that he will have a son by Sarah and tells him to name the child Isaac. And at age 100, 25 years after the first promise, you think you've waited long for your prayers to be answered. 25 years after the first promise to have descendants, Sarah was over 90 years old when Isaac was born. And let's read Genesis 21. It says this. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. The son of promise is born and they name him Isaac, meaning laughter, just as God had commanded. But not everything is happiness and joy in that home because the arrival of a new child creates a new problem for this family. For 14 years, Ishmael had been Abraham's only son. Abraham loved him. Abraham cared deeply about Ishmael. It was his only son, and he spoiled him. And Ishmael sees Isaac now as a rival, and his reaction to the new son threatens to split the home. So now Abraham's 103 He's 103 years old, and it was the custom for the Jews to wean their children when they were around three years old. But Genesis 21 teaches us Ishmael began to ridicule Isaac to make trouble in the home, causing problems. So Abraham says enough is enough, and he sends them away because that is what the Lord tells him to do. But it breaks Abraham's heart. So Paul is using this story I just told you to show the difference between children of the faith and children of the flesh by the will of the men. And that is all he's saying actually in verse 21 in our text. Go back to the writings of Moses, he's saying, and learn. He's saying, are you not hearing? Are you not listening to what it says? See, Abraham and Sarah, they showed weakness when they brought in Hagar and tried to help God with his promise to give them a son. Abraham had given up hope for a son through Sarah, so Abraham tried through Hagar. This is a symbol of bondage. This is a symbol of failure and doubt. Paul is telling us that this act is illustrative of man's attempt to please God by the works of the law doing things by the flesh, doing things under our own power, by our own strength, instead of by the power of God. Now, there is a remarkable contrast between these two sons. Isaac and Ishmael have the same father, but different mothers. The son of the slave woman, Hagar, is Ishmael, born through a sinful human effort of an ordinary birth. The son of Sarah is Isaac. He was the child of promise. There was nothing ordinary about his birth. It could be explained by nothing but the hand of God. Jews say they are children of promise, but Paul has a lesson that looks beyond just the physical connection here. 
Remember that back in the Bible days, you have to remember this. The status of the mother determined the status of her children. And if the mother was a slave, then her children were slaves, even if the father was a king. But on the other hand, if the mother was free, then her children were also free, even if the father was a slave. Ishmael, he was born in slavery. Isaac was born free. So Paul is asking this. He's saying, who's your mama? Who's your spiritual mother? Is she a slave or is she free? You see, Hagar's son was born according to the flesh. Sarah, a free woman. Her son was born through promise, born by a miracle of God. Are you starting to see where Paul is going with all of this? It's a powerful illustration that for the child of God, birth comes from above. It comes from above. When Sarah and Abraham turned to Hagar, they were trying to help God by their own efforts in their own flesh. They were going to secure God's promised blessing, but instead of a blessing, they got trouble. Hagar began to despise Sarah, and Sarah, she flew into a rage. Their home was thrown into chaos, which still continues today. 4,000 years later, this is what we're dealing with in the news today in the Arab-Israeli conflict. You see, this is what happens when we try to secure God's blessings through our own frail efforts. We make a mess of things. Do you guys remember Paul Harvey? Back when he was on the radio, he talked about a sign that was once on a mechanic shop, and it read, labor, $10 an hour. If you watch me, $12 per hour. If you help me, $15 per hour. And if you worked on it first and then brought it in, $27.50 an hour. Well, today a sign like this would read about five times as much, but I think you get the picture, don't you? See, we make a mess of things, but God is the expert at making his people righteous before him. And that's what happened to Abraham. His own human efforts to secure God's promised blessing only brought trouble into his life. So let's pick up our text again. And Paul explains this to us, starting in verse 24. He says, which things are symbolic, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Remember, as we walk through this, Paul is just using this as an illustration to teach us something. In verse 24, we are directly told that in his illustration, Hagar represents the covenant given on Mount Sinai. Now, this would have been an insult to the Jews immediately because Hagar was the mother of Ishmael and the Arab nations. But because these men tried to keep the law, they were more like children of the slave than of the free. And the first audience would have understood that what Paul had in mind for the second covenant here in verse 24 was the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You see, the Abrahamic covenant, not fulfilled today, but we benefit from it every single day because we serve the same Messiah. Through the Abrahamic covenant and through Sarah, the messianic hope is found. The Mosaic law, all it could bring is bondage. And just as Hagar was a slave and only could produce a child born into slavery, that is all that the law will ever bring you, slavery, bondage. 
Paul is telling them, if you want to make the law something that you are obligated to serve in your life, then you have put yourself back into slavery. You have put yourself back into bondage. You have put yourself back into the demands of the law, and the penalty is death. And only God can set you free. In verse 25, Paul adds to it and tells us that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Now, the point of adding this little detail here is just to show that it is at Mount Sinai, and that was not a part of the land that had been promised to Abraham. It represented the two ways, the way of human effort. Hagar was in bondage. The law came at Mount Sinai, and Jerusalem, at the time that Paul wrote this, with its temple sacrifices, was still in bondage with her children. See, nothing but legalism was found in Jerusalem in that day. Jerusalem in Paul's day was a city in slavery. Its citizens were living underneath Roman rule. The Jews at this point were focused on getting rid of Rome. They didn't want to be slaves to the Roman Empire anymore, but what they should have been worried about was their slavery to the laws of Moses. Israel was unable to live in obedience to God under the law, so the nation was cursed, just like God had warned in Deuteronomy 28. That's what the law does. Because no one can live in perfect obedience, and it just puts people into bondage. Now read verse 26 again. Paul tells us that as Christians, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Jerusalem above is free. Jerusalem is the spiritual mother of those who look for their justification by faith. It is the Jerusalem which now is, in verse 25, not just a reference to a future Jerusalem. You see, the contrast that is given in this text is between the earthly legalistic system that was represented in that day in Jerusalem and the spiritual regeneration which comes from above that is the present possession of every believer in Jesus Christ. The Jews have their religious center in Jerusalem. This is an earthly man-made city. It was where God was worshipped, but the nation rejected God. The nation murdered the prophets. The Jerusalem from above is the mother of all the children of grace. Those in Christ, believers in Christ, you and I, we have a citizenship, a heavenly citizenship. In Christ, you belong to a heavenly Jerusalem from above. A follower of Christ today, you can go tour over there, can't you? We talked about this last week. You can go to Jerusalem where the temple stood. You can go to the Western Wall, but that is not the center of your faith because we look to the heavenly Jerusalem looking up to where Christ is. You see, Paul was telling the Judaizers the same message that John the Baptist gave and that Jesus gave. You must have a spiritual birth. Now, God, he has a physical seed, the nation, the people of Israel, but even they need to be reborn by God. The contrast is still about the law and grace. Galatians Christians were thinking that they were on the right path, but they were deceived into thinking that the law would bring them blessing. Now, Paul wants them to see what we really find there in the law, bondage. Instead, look up, he tells them, to our heavenly home. In Hebrews 11, we see an interesting verse that Abraham was waiting for this heavenly Jerusalem. Remember what verse 10 teaches us? It says in Hebrews 11, for Abraham, he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And what does Revelation 21 teach? It tells us that the day is coming when the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven. But we already belong there. It's up there in heaven now, but we already belong there. That is where our hope comes from. It's the city of the living God. 
God sees us as his people in Christ, seated in heaven, in the heavenly city of God. You see, Sarah was free, not a slave, and in Christ we are not a slave to the law. Our spiritual life doesn't come from down here, it comes from this city. Our spiritual life comes as a result of God's promise, not because of the law. Now here comes an amazing teaching. In verse 27, Paul now quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. I hope you guys can track this because it's beautiful. Read it with me. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. God had Paul put this in Galatians for a reason. He quotes Isaiah 54 because it graphically, descriptively describes the restoration of Israel to the position of favor with their Lord. Isaiah 54, it actually deals with the future enlargement of Israel during the reign of the Messiah. But notice carefully, Paul does not say this has been fulfilled. And Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant passage. The cry of rejoicing, follow the line of thought, is based on the death and resurrection of the suffering servant. We know him to be Jesus the Christ. And this is the entire idea in Isaiah 54 of fruitfulness. It's all about, listen, the great increase of believers who are justified by faith in Christ. Specifically, it's about the nation of Israel. Israel coming to faith in the Messiah. This is part of the purpose of the tribulation. The 70th week of Daniel and Isaiah 54 is about the restoration of Israel. Great truth from the word of God right here. You see, Israel had suffered during her days of unbelief, including being hauled off into Babylon, being hauled off into captivity. Israel was like Sarah, the long barren wife of Abraham. Right now, the offspring of Hagar, Ishmael, the Arabs dominate the land. But Isaiah 54 is saying the time is coming at the end of the tribulation and into the millennium when the offspring of Sarah, Hebrew people redeemed by faith, will have more children than Hagar, referred to here as she who has a husband, referring to Abraham and Hagar together. Sarah was barren. Sarah did not rejoice when Ishmael was born. Paul is telling the Judaizers the days coming at the end of the tribulation and into the millennium when even Israel is going to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And faith, faith brings freedom. It makes me think of the words of Jesus Christ in John 8, 36. Memorize these words for your own growth. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you what? Shall be free indeed. You're free, Christian. You're free from the law. Like Sarah, God has brought us to a point where we have realized that we can do nothing to bring about God's promise to our life. And so all that is left is to trust in the sovereign power of God to save us. That's it. Sarah represents a promise of faith and freedom. Grace brings children who are free. So here comes the application starting in verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. 
Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. You see, Paul, as a Hebrew, is saying this to Gentile believers, calling them brothers. All believers in Christ, Jew and Gentile, are children of the promise. Just like Sarah, just like Isaac, we relate to God not based on the Old Testament laws, but because of God's promise that he would receive us by faith. Grace does what the law could never do. It motivates us to live for the Lord. Look to his promise of unfailing love and grace, because when you learn to live by faith, your journey between now and heaven doesn't have to be a struggle. It can be a joy-filled walk with Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says to cast out the bondwoman and her son. In other words, get rid of the legalistic messages. Don't listen to anyone who says you have to do more to be accepted by God. Paul was referring back to the story of Ishmael and Isaac, born according to the flesh, Ishmael, born according to the spirit, Isaac. Ishmael at age 17, he persecuted Isaac when Isaac was only three years old. This you can actually see in Genesis 21. This was the beginning of those Arab-Israeli tensions. That animosity and that jealousy has been there from the days of Abraham between his sons. Now, Sarah didn't take kindly to this, and she told Abraham in Genesis to cast out this bondwoman and her son. God confirmed to Abraham this was the right thing to do. Ishmael wasn't going to take part in the inheritance of Isaac because the two sons had two entirely different standings before Abraham. But if you've ever seen children fight over an inheritance, you could understand the danger if the child of the slave Hagar was allowed to remain. The legalist persecutes, here's the teaching, the legalist persecutes those who enjoy liberty. This is what was happening in the first century. Get rid of the legalistic thinking. Get rid of any thinking that tells you you have to earn your way. The law always leaves you feeling like you can never measure up, but you are free, believer in Christ. Believe the promise and stop trying to earn your way. You know, all religion outside of faith in Christ is man's effort to relate to God outside the miracle of spiritual birth. You are born again by the power of the Spirit. Good works and salvation by grace, they're completely opposite. They don't mix. They're incompatible. Expect persecution from those who try to work for their salvation. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. People who keep the law and people who live by grace are always going to clash. They're always going to battle. You can't get along with a legalist. They shouldn't be promoted in any church. They should not teach. They should not preach. They should not be given positions of authority in any church. Paul was upset here because the Christians he loved, they should have just been simply walking by faith, but they were walking by sight. He says, you are born again by the spirit, not by your own efforts. So don't try to live by your own efforts. Live in a way that is consistent with your spiritual birthright. Don't trade away God's way for how men live. Don't trade away freedom for bondage. By the power of Christ living in you, start trusting, live by faith, live according to the Spirit. And don't try to achieve what only God can do because the message of freedom in God is as old as Abraham. One of my favorite stories I like to tell comes out of the sinking of the Titanic when it struck that iceberg in the North Atlantic 
sinking in the early hours of August 15 of 1912. And you guys know the story. There's no need to repeat it. It was thought to be an unsinkable ship because it had a double hull and it had 16 watertight compartments. It was said in that day, even God couldn't sink her. Now, for many, many years, the experts thought that the iceberg tore a 300-foot gash in the side of this 900-foot long ship. But since the wreckage has been located and photographed, they had to change their thinking about it. As the ship scraped along the iceberg, only six little small slits were torn into the hull. But these small rips were in the watertight compartments, causing the ship to sink slowly as it flooded. You see, the teaching is that little things can have big consequences. That night, over 1,500 people lost their lives in the icy waters of the Atlantic. You know, I don't think Abraham and Sarah thought it was a big deal when they tried to father a child through Hagar. But the consequences of that little decision have ripped through the Middle East. 4,000 years after the Hagar solution, people are still dying because of that decision. If you've seen the movie Titanic, you know the main storyline, but Hollywood leaves out the good stuff. You know there was one hero on the Titanic that Hollywood never mentioned, and some of you know of this man. On board the Titanic was a Baptist pastor from Scotland named John Harper. He was only 39 years old, traveling with his six-year-old daughter, Nana. And he was traveling to the States at the time for John to preach at Moody Church in Chicago. His wife had died a few years before this, and he was raising Nana as a single dad. And as the ship was sinking, John placed Nana into a lifeboat, but he made no effort to follow after her. Instead, he turned and he ran through the ship, yelling out the words, women, children, and unsaved into the lifeboats. He continued to pass through the crowd, imploring people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. He gave his life jacket to a man who was not a Christian and told the man, you need this more than I. As the ship slipped beneath the surface, the water was filled with people clinging on to pieces of debris. And of the hundreds of people that were floating in the icy water, only six were rescued. And one of them was a man who met John Harper in the water. Four years, just four years after the Titanic sank, this man shared his testimony at a church in Hamilton, Canada. And he told the church, I am a survivor of the Titanic. And when I was drifting alone that awful night, the tide brought John Harper also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he yelled out to me, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. And so he replied, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And the waves took him apart again. But a little while later, they brought him back together. And he said to him again, he said, are you saved? No, I honestly cannot say that I am. And again, John Harper yelled out to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. A short time later, John Harper sank down into the ocean. And this man testified there on the, that night, alone in the water with two miles of water underneath me, I believed I am John Harper's last convert. And if you ever find yourself in Glasgow, Scotland, be sure to visit Harper Memorial Baptist Church, named after Pastor John Harper. 
You see, his body was never recovered, but near the church is a tombstone for him that is inscribed these words that says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man that laid down his life for his friends. You are a child of freedom. You have been set free by God's amazing grace because this is what Christ has done for us, laid down his life for us. See, grace invites you to simply receive God's free gift of eternal life. But when you're in the icy water, hanging onto a scrap piece of, of wood, facing the imminent prospect of death, there's nothing that you can do except believe. The name Ishmael, it means God is paying attention. It represents performance-based religion. Isaac means laughter. The name represents joyful living under grace. Ishmael represents the belief that you can make yourself more attractive or more lovable before God by doing certain things, by abstaining from bad things. What a miserable way to live. But Isaac, he represents supernatural birth because there is no other way that a 90-year-old woman could give birth. The thought was laughable. The birth was a miracle. It had to be a divine intervention. And that's what grace is. You see, grace is knowing that it's humanly impossible for me to be good enough for God. And so he needed to step in at the cross and perform a miracle. Jesus became sin for me so that I may become the righteousness of God by faith. Ishmael was proud of being the firstborn son, and he ridiculed little Isaac. How sick is that, ridiculing a three-year-old child? But this is the same thing that legalism does. It produces pride. Isaac knew he didn't deserve the blessings of the second son. Because he was a second son, he shouldn't have had those blessings, but he accepted it simply as a gift. In Luke 18, Jesus told the story of two men who went to the temple to pray. You remember the story. One was a legalistic Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector, considered to be the worst of the sinners in that day. And the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank that I am not like the other men, especially this tax collector. I fast. I tithe. I'm a good person. But the tax collector bowed down and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked this question. He said, which one do you think went home? justified. Which attitude describes you? Which attitude describes you? Legalism lets you brag about how good you are. Grace humbles you to realize that only God's mercy can save you. And just as Ishmael and Isaac could not live in the same house, let me tell you that neither can legalism and grace. Either believe that there are things that you can do to make God happy on your own, or you rest in his grace and you rest in his love, living with the gratitude you now have as accepted into the family of God. See, this gratitude and love is what motivates and inspires us to live for him. So kick out those legalistic teachings, keep them out of your life, and for please, for goodness sake, would you please keep them out of the church? What would it look like this week, Christian? If you lived enjoying the fact that God loves you in spite of how much you fail, what would that look like this week? Abraham and Sarah, they had to learn some hard lessons. God promised a great number of descendants, but they showed a lack of faith when they launched the Hagar solution. But God has also made you promises, hasn't he? He has promised you rest for your soul. He has promised you he will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised you unconditional love, that he will direct your steps, and that he will one day return for you. Worry is sin. Worry is sin. Because it says to God that he's a liar, that you don't trust him. 
And Abraham and Sarah, they started worrying that God wouldn't keep his word, so they thought God needed their help. So don't make that same mistake. God will keep his promises, but he's not in a hurry like we are. You know, we try to take shortcuts. We want that instant gratification. But remember that with God, timing is more important than time. And his timing is always perfect, isn't it? So God has a plan for your life. Let him direct you and let his grace sustain you. And let your life be lived by faith as children of his freedom. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.